You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today we are joined by, I guess we can consider them repeat guests now. We heard from them back in December for some migration and habitat updates from Washington and Oregon. Uh, so today we are going to be rejoined by Kyle Spragans and Brandon Reichus. And we're going to have a follow-up discussion to our previous episode, which was with Kelly Warren, where we talked about some goose management, goose harvest management issues in the Pacific Northwest. With Kelly, we spoke about those issues primarily from a hunter perspective. Kelly is obviously, as you heard in the previous episode, a Ducks Unlimited regional biologist in the Pacific Northwest. And of course, Kyle and Brandon are the state waterfowl biologists for those respective states that have a much larger responsibility and role in the harvest management decisions that affect birds in those states. So with that, let me formally welcome them to this podcast. Uh, Kyle Spragans, waterfowl section manager with Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Kyle, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. And Brandon Reichus, migratory game bird coordinator for Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Brandon, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Kyle, we're going to start with you for a personal and professional introduction and background. We uh, we didn't give you guys an opportunity on our previous discussion. Uh, we wanted to keep that one rather short, but this one is going to be a bit more extended conversation, and we'd like to give our guest an opportunity to introduce themselves to our listeners. So, Kyle, tell us a bit about yourself, both personally and professionally. Yep, I'm Kyle Spragans. I currently work for the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, as Mike said, the waterfowl section manager. Um, so overseeing 
you know, uh, populations and surveys and decisions uh, related to waterfowl in Washington. Um, along with that comes the responsibility of interacting with the Pacific Flyway Study Committee. Um, in flyway management terms, it's sort of the sinking of the federal and the state processes that lead to the regulations that people kind of experience during the season. But for us in the background, it's sort of being able to gather various information from surveys and studies and other partners doing work out there on the ground to try and inform better decisions. So that's what I get to do now. So my my background um, luckily has been quite a bit of waterfowl, but it's kind of been sprinkled across different agencies and experiences. I spent about six years with the U.S. Geological Survey um, conducting waterfowl migration studies uh, as part of research projects they had going on there. And then I spent three years up on the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, a key area and for several of the geese that we might talk about today. So yeah, it's been a very West Coast oriented, but very Pacific Flyway oriented and uh, certainly very relevant to today's topic. Thank you. And Brandon, same to you. Uh, give us an introduction to your uh, personal and professional background. If there's some, somewhat of a reoccurring theme out there among among waterfowl biologists that I that I've noticed, and there's a lot of um, expatriate Minnesotans. So <laughs> I, I am one of them. I, I grew up on a on a small farm in in southwest Minnesota. Got an undergrad degree in wildlife and fishery sciences from South Dakota State University, um, and then actually started working uh, as a seasonal position with Ducks Unlimited on a on a research project in the Great Lakes that they were doing in the early 2000s. Uh, that morphed into me coming out to Oregon for graduate school, and and I guess I've just been here ever since. I, I started with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife pretty soon out of school in around 2005, and uh, was first uh, what we call our assistant game bird biologist in our in our game birds program, and then about I guess seven years ago now, almost eight years ago got the migratory game bird coordinator position, which, you know, it, it's kind of a little bit of a mouthful, but typically people just call it the state waterfowl biologist, uh, even though I have have uh, doves and, and bantail pigeons and snipe and other, other migratory game birds um, under my hat. So I've uh, been in that position, very similar to what Kyle said, as far as, you know, responsibilities, um, kind of overseeing the state's uh, management programs as well as um, interacting with the flyway, which is a, is a big portion, I think, of all of our state waterfowl biologist type jobs. Pretty avid uh, bird hunter myself, like I think a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of our counterparts are. So yeah, that's you know that's probably my 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 first thing is 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 duck hunting before you know getting into big game or anything like that. Thank you, guys. Thank you both for those introductions uh, in the interest of time, uh, out of respect for your time. Let's move into our discussion here. And I did I did say already that this is going to be a complement to what we spoke about with Kelly. Uh, Kelly brought this idea to us and said, hey, you know, we have some pretty, pretty unusual and some might say complex goose management, goose harvest management um, issues that are rather unique in the Pacific Northwest. And I think this would be something that a lot of our listeners would be interested in. So we looked into it. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot to learn here. And so on today's episode, we are going to shift gears and talk uh, in a bit more detail about what goes into the harvest management decision making around these geese. But we're also going to kind of, and this is where we'll start, talk about the history of the 
goose distribution and abundance to some extent in in those states. So I guess that's probably as good a place to start as any other than for me to tell our listeners that if you have not yet listened to the episode with Kelly, I would encourage you to do that. It would have come out immediately before this one. Uh, That's going to sort of set this discussion up a bit for you. So I guess first off, Brandon, I'll direct this question to you. Having already introduced these seven subspecies with Kelly, Brandon, talk with us about the general pattern and history of white-cheeked geese in the Pacific Northwest. We will have a chance also to talk about snow geese and white-fronted geese, but it might be better to hold that to the end. So let's just focus on white-cheeked geese right, right now. Tell us a story about those birds in the Pacific Northwest. So I think, you know, as probably some of the listeners may know, you know, the white cheeked goose complex or what people typically just call Canada geese, you know, there's there's 11 recognized subspecies across the continent, right? It's a pretty large area. Seven of those can occur right here in Northwest Oregon, Southwest Washington. So one small chunk of the continent can host um, up to seven different subspecies of, of those 11. And so that certainly creates a um, kind of a management challenge when each of those subspecies is also generally managed as a different management population with different goals and objectives for their population status. So kind of a brief recap of, of, of what, we, what we deal with here. I'll start from the largest um, and, and work my way down. So first is, is what we call the Western Canada Goose. And, and most folks will just recognize that as your regular Canada goose. Some people do out here do call them giants. They're, they're not specifically the giant subspecies, but most people would have an extremely difficult time telling them apart. So they're your typical 9, 10, 11 pound Canada goose, um, you know, very silvery chested in most cases. And they, they just look like a regular goose. Those are also our resident birds. So we, we certainly get some migrants of those coming from the north, but those are the birds that nest here as well, both throughout Oregon and Washington, and really the entire uh, Western United States and 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 in you know kind of southern British Columbia, southern Alberta, uh, in, in those areas. Then next um, in size would be the Vancouver Canada goose. So that's a uh, another relatively large uh, subspecies, um, but it is very dark chested. Uh, they are mostly resident in southeast Alaska. So we're talking kind of those coastal areas of southeast Alaska, mostly northwest British Columbia. Um, there is some historical accounts that they may have nested, you know, almost all the way to Washington. But, who, you know, who really knows in some of those accounts. But right now, the, you know, you can find those birds anywhere from southwest Alaska down, down uh, in, into coastal British Columbia generally very uh, a non-migratory subspecies. There is some evidence that a small portion of the flock does migrate and ends up down in, in colonized areas. However, they're extremely difficult to tell apart from a dusky Canada goose other than just size. And so from a field standpoint, um, I certainly would not hang my hat on ever looking at a goose in the field and saying that's a Vancouver versus a dusky. And, and I doubt Kyle would either. You know, we've measured a lot of birds throughout throughout history here in, in hunter check stations. You know, some have keyed out as Vancouver's, but if they actually were, is maybe up for debate. The next down in size is that dusky Canada goose that I just mentioned. It is the, the main driver of a lot of our harvest complexity here, and we'll get into that later. Um, those birds uh, 
have one of the most restricted breeding ranges of any of the goose populations on the continent. They nest um, exclusively um, on the Copper River Delta in Alaska, as well as some of the adjacent islands in Prince William Sound, and then an island that's about 80 miles offshore of the Copper River Delta called Middleton Island. That's the breeding range. That's it. Really, really small. And, and therefore, they've got a relatively um, small population size. You know, we're talking 15,000 15, birds. Some of those birds do spend the winter um, up in those areas. Some may winter along the British Columbia, Southeast Alaska coast, but the vast majority of them migrate to uh, Northwest Oregon and Southwest Washington. And they, they, you know, they probably almost always have. We, we don't think there's been a lot of rain shifts, although historically before, you know, the, the, the valley was broken up for agriculture and things like that, they more may have been more of a coastal wintering bird than they are than they are now. Next in size is the lesser Canada goose. Uh, this is a pretty tough one, I think, for most folks to ID and, and, and even managers. Basically, they're just a, a small version of what most folks consider, you know, regular Canada goose. Uh, typically, maybe a five or six pound bird, slightly smaller than a dusky. Uh, those duskies that I mentioned, you know, they're, you know, six, seven pound birds, maybe eight pound birds. But, but again, very, very dark chested. The lessers generally just aren't as dark chested. Um, they nest in, in, in uh, kind of interior portions of Alaska. Um, all the way down to like uh, around the Anchorage area and in the Upper Cook Inlet, uh, but typically, you know, they're not a they're 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 what you would consider finding out in you know maybe a a beaver pond or you know kind of a, a river slough up in Alaska, something like that. Whereas the the other species that we'll get into here in a second, you know, would be more of a tundra type type environment. So those lessers. We don't know a lot about them as far as population status. We do get some trend information from the waterfowl surveys in Alaska, but they're certainly not an extremely numerous bird. Um, but they do seem to be pretty widespread in wintering in, in Oregon and Washington, and not specifically just this northwest uh, Oregon, southwest southwest Washington. They do winter in pretty good numbers in some uh, eastern areas of our states as well. Next, then we enter, you know, what what we now called the, the cackling goose complex. But again, we're going to kind of keep this simple and just call them all white cheek geese. So we have the taverners goose. So they're a subspecies that nests in Alaska, uh, typically in more tundra type areas. However, they're extremely similar to lesser Canada geese. When we do our uh, goose ID materials uh, that Kelly may have touched on, he's actually helped, helped the development of some of those. You know, we, we talk about them separately, but from a management standpoint in hand, I mean, even for biologists, they're almost impossible to tell apart. The measurements overlap, color overlaps. So they're really, really similar. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, we kind of lump them as, as taverners, lessers. They are more abundant than, than lessers uh, based on the survey information that we have from Alaska and then, you know, just kind of general feelings that you would get down here looking at birds coming through check stations and things. Um, so they're, you know, they're about the size of a snow goose. Um, you know, not, not, a, not a very big goose, but not, not tiny. Um, also, uh, they can be pretty variable in their, uh, in their, in their color. Um, but one of the things we do know about taverners is that they experienced a range shift 
you know, in the, in the 1960s and 70s, most of those birds would have wintered in California. And then over time, they, you know, discovered the agricultural regions here in the Willamette Valley and in and, and other areas of Oregon and Washington. And it, it pretty much, for, for all we know, almost entirely shifted out of California. But, it, you know, it happened a long time ago. We're talking generations ago, human generations ago. And then throughout the 60s and 70s, they kind of switched uh, and, and just moved further north, um, you know, due to agricultural shifts, maybe, you know, all the, the, the first signs of, you know, the changing climate, who knows. But, but they did uh, pretty much switch entirely to, to this area. And that kind of started the whole issue behind agricultural damage. You know, you, you, had, a, you had a large swing in, in numbers where, you know, the population may not have been any bigger than it was, but, but that population moved into an area that, that was not experienced in dealing with uh, large numbers of, of wintering Canada geese. And, and you know, the, the agricultural base here in, in Western Oregon, uh, Western Washington, you know, we're, we're a relatively mild climate. So we do have a winter growing season. So you have a lot of green forage on the landscape. It's not waste grain. Um, it's, you know, winter grasses, you know, be it winter wheat and other winter cereals or um, other types of grasses that are being grown for seed um, that are green during the winter and attractive to geese. Uh, the next uh, species that that we deal with or subspecies that we deal with are the Aleutians. Um, and so they they are, you know, they've had some complexity over the years, but that has that has waned. So as some of the listeners may know, the Aleutian goose was once on the endangered species list, may have numbered fewer than a thousand individuals. Uh, you know, those birds nest um, on the Aleutian Islands, as their name suggests, up, up in Alaska. Um, you know, and that Aleutian Island chain is is a is a geographically, it's 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 almost hard to wrap your mind around how long that chain of islands goes. You know, and it it basically goes all the way over to Siberia, and the birds, most of them, actually nest well out on those islands. You know, they're not nesting close to the mainland of Alaska. Uh, those birds um, still mostly winter in California. However, some of the migrants um, do hit. Uh, the coastal areas of Oregon and Washington, and we do have a small wintering flock in 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 Oregon, specifically in Tillamook County. Um, their numbers have rebounded significantly, though. Uh, the issue with with them being, you know, what caused their low numbers was introduced foxes on those Aleutian Islands that were introduced for for farming purposes, um, and those geese had evolved with no mammalian predators, and so you know pretty simple for, for, for Fox to just go up there and, and hammer on, you know, nests and, and, and adult birds. Um, when the foxes were removed, uh, for, you know, specifically to aid Aleutians and other, uh, nesting seabirds and water birds out there, they responded extremely well. Uh, you know, the habitat and the wintering grounds was, was, was good. Lots of agriculture, lots of secure wetlands, things like that. And they've done extremely well. And, you know, we may now be talking somewhere around 200,000 um, Aleutian geese in the flyway. Thankfully, mostly wintering in California. Then the last, the last subspecies is our smallest subspecies, what, what we've always referred to as the cackler out here. So they're the, the minima cackling geese now. Those birds nest on the Yukon Kuskokum Delta in Western Alaska. So pretty, pretty restricted breeding range, but that Yukon Kuskokum Delta is one of, you know, certainly the most important goose 
um, breeding area in Alaska, if not on the continent, you know, for the, the number of birds that are smashed into a, you know, pretty small area, you know, so we're talking these cackling geese, some of the taverners cackling geese, brant, emperor geese, white friend geese, you know, and all multitudes of ducks and other water birds. So a really important area. And this population also historically wintered in California, similar to the taverners. And it went through a significant population reduction in the in the 60s into the 70s and the early 1980s. And in fact, the, the season for both sport harvest uh, in the Pacific Flyway as well as subsistence harvest on that Yukon Cuscoquam Delta, where there is this, you know, a very large um, Alaska Native population, and they're they're important for 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 their subsistence up there. The population, you know, essentially crashed. Um, you know, went from you know a few hundred thousand birds down to an estimated about twenty five thousand. So significant population reduction. And the season was closed for subsistence and sport harvest in 1984. That that season closure allowed those birds to respond pretty rapidly. The, the population information we have is, you know, nearly a straight line uh, of increase from 1984 until about 1998, so somewhere around in there. If you look at that rate of increase, and then you also look at the, the, the rate that the birds were changing their wintering areas, they, they, they match. And so at the time that that population was growing, um, you know, and they went through a severe population bottleneck, of course, they were also switching their wintering grounds from California to Northwest Oregon, Southwest Washington. And by about 1994, which coincidentally is the year this, the hunting season reopened on those birds, they had almost entirely switched from California to this area. And so I mentioned the, the taverners kind of, opening this door um, in, in this region of our states to kind of an agricultural damage issue. And then we, you know, we dumped another now 200 to 300,000 birds on, on top of it. So population estimate right now for cacklers is just above 200,000, but it has been recently as high as, as, as 300,000. And of course, we didn't have an estimate last year due to, due to COVID. But they're certainly an abundant wintering bird here. They are our most abundant uh, wintering white-cheeked goose by far. Um, and they are kind of the drivers of some of the headaches from a, from a damage to agricultural standpoint that, that we deal with now. You know, that's, that's really it, I guess, in a large nutshell. Um, you know, we've got, we've got a very diverse suite of wintering types of Canada geese here that all have their different management challenges and uh and population goals and trajectories brandon that was awesome thank you for that that detailed and very informative uh explanation this is something this is an episode for for that discussion alone that i'm going to personally bookmark so that i can go back to and and uh, educate myself on the white-cheeked geese subspecies if we want to want to call them that i've never studied white-cheeked geese a whole lot i'll have to confess that so that was very informative you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. From my perspective, so thank you for that. You spoke about the taverners and the cacklers as having been the ones that have shown, primarily the ones shown, showing the distributional shift. Are there any of the other subspecies for which you're currently seeing uh, shifts? Um, well, I, I know you talked about the Aleutians still primarily wintering in California. Is there any shift occurring with those that's being picked up or any of the other species? You know, from a from a California to Oregon standpoint, uh, no, not not on the Aleutians. The, the, the issue with the Aleutians is they are certainly more noticeable here. But that's because you know the, the population is you know a couple orders of magnitude higher than than it once was, and so there's just a lot more Aleutians in the flyway. Um, you know, maybe some in indications that there are some you know there's shifting areas in California, and Kyle could certainly speak a lot better to that than I could because he's pretty close with those birds from his graduate work. But uh, they you know they certainly have exploited new areas in California, and we've been a little fearful of that that you know that may eventually happen here in Oregon. But to to this time point in Oregon, you know we haven't had haven't seen anything that we call a population shift. We've simply just seen more Aleutians in, in the in the areas that they've historically used. And that's just due to the overall population growth. Kyle, I'll go to you now for a follow-up question. Uh, and this is a bit of curiosity here, but the, so the Aleutians are not showing the shift to, um, to the Pacific Northwest the way some of these other species, subspecies are. Why do we think that is? Is there, do they do some overwater? Uh, do they have an overwater migration route to, from the Aleutian Islands to California or are they, do they kind of follow the, the mainland? What's the story there on, on why we're not seeing as much of a shift for that subspecies? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, the, the, that general, the general trend that Brandon is referring to there is that the large bodied white cheek geese, the Canada geese, don't really show any kinds of shifts, but the smaller ones uh, have. And whether that's Tabner, the Cacklers, with Aleutians, it's difficult because the the reality is we don't really have a benchmark of what was. Uh, it, they were so depressed in their population size by the time that any of the 
strings of Endangered Species Act or the predecessors to that, you know, those types of prote protections that it's really hard to know. It's like, okay, the less than thousand birds on the landscape, what, <laughs> what did it used to look like? Uh, certainly as the populations rebounded, so what was less than a thousand birds now is somewhere in the 120,000 population size range. But you're right. They, Brandon mentioned that they nest very far west in the Aleutian Island chain, thousands of miles off, off of Alaska. And for the most part, as far as we can tell, it's, yes, there are definitely birds that basically beeline over the ocean and make landfall somewhere between southwest Washington and, and northern California on their way into the Central Valley, parts of the Central Valley uh, and San Joaquin Valleys of, the, of California. Some of the descriptions that have started to come out of that was in certain areas, particularly in Northern California and the Oregon coast, those areas were largely described as a spring stop. So during spring months, you'd sort of get this bulk of birds that come passing back through. But more recently, they've been logging pretty decent numbers of Aleutian geese touching down in the fall and uh, kind of you know, broadening the window of time that they're actually in some of those areas. So there, there's little hints of change, not nearly as dramatic as the cackler and the tabners. Um, but, uh, but yeah, those small geese, for whatever reason, seem to be more influenced potentially by subtle changes, whether that's agriculture, different weather patterns or something like that. Something is a little bit more e easily teetered into sort of a, a need to shift. When we combine all of these subspecies of white-cheeked geese that uh, that could possibly occur in Washington and, and Oregon, what do we think or what do we know would be the peak winter population size across all those subspecies combined? Well, I'll you know kind of put a caveat in there that that we we don't have any um, you know winter index um, of of those birds. They're you know it's, it's extremely difficult to to count uh, wintering dark geese from, from aircraft simply because they many times blend in with fields and you, you can't just go to the big marshes and count them, right? Because they're geese and they're not in the marshes. They're out, they're out generally in agricultural fields. But if we start to add up what we know, what we think we know for breeding population sizes, you know, if, if we've got 200,000 or some in some years more of those smallest cackling geese, um, and we know that nearly all of them are wintering in this region. There are still some, a small number that winter in the Central Valley of California. And there's actually a, a small number, maybe a similar number that winter in the eastern sides of Oregon and Washington. So right there, you know, you get this ballpark at 200,000. And, and then if we throw in, you know, maybe 50,000 taverners and that that's a big maybe. You know, the, the index, the, the numbers that we get from Alaska on taverners are, are, are truly an index. Uh, what, what gets reported out is not a population estimate. I think that a lot of times people look at it and, and assume that it is, but it's not. It's just an index that helps us assess trends. And so, you know, best guess, and this has always been the best guess, you know, it's persisted for probably 40 years, eh, maybe 50,000 taverners, give or take. And, and those are going to be the two uh, most abundant wintering white-cheeked geese. So then we throw in our 15,000 uh, or so duskies. It probably, you know, smaller numbers of, of lessers in this region than that. But again, we have very, very, you know, really no reliable population size estimates for those guys, just some trend information. And then, you know, 
Western Canada geese, which, you know, there's certainly not, you know, there's not huge numbers of them here. Most of the birds that are in this side of the state in the winter are probably resident birds, uh, probably not a whole lot of migrant birds that trickle into this area. So, you know, you can probably throw another 10, 15,000, you know, onto that. So you start adding all those numbers up and, you know, right now you might be approaching 300,000 and then just, you know, Five or six years ago, when when the cacklers were themselves nearing three hundred thousand birds, you know, you're talking three fifty or or more. So that's our best best guess. But again, it's 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 just trying to add up what we think we know about population status. It's not not a concrete number. And to give people that may not be familiar with the some of these areas in Washington and Oregon, it's not like that number, 350,000 or so, is spread across the entirety of the two states. We're talking about a pretty restricted geography where these birds occur, right, Brandon? Yeah, that's 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 right. So so from a, you know, for, for just kind of a geography lesson for the listeners, um, the Willamette Valley in Oregon is the main, the main wintering area. And the Willamette Valley stretches from Eugene, uh, where the Oregon ducks play all the way up to Portland, which were, you know, so that's like a about a hundred mile stretch uh, north to south. And then the valley is, these are pretty broad valley, you know, in some, some areas approaching maybe 30 miles wide, but probably averaging more, you know, more on the, you know, 20 miles wide, 20, 25 miles wide. Um, so it's a pretty big chunk of real estate. And then we've got to include a few of the coastal estuaries that are just on the other side of our coast range mountains. So that divide the Willamette Valley from the ocean. Um, and so those, so those estuaries have some, some goose wearing habitat pastures and things like that. And then when we get into Kyle's country, I'll kind of let him take it, but it's a much reduced area that we're talking about. Yeah, this area in Washington, the sort of equivalent zone where we're talking about the overlap of all all seven of these white cheek geese. Uh, it's a much narrower ribbon in southwest Washington. It really touches sort of our f- five southwest counties um, along basically small little valley agricultural pockets along the lower Columbia River, so where the Columbia River exits out into the Pacific Ocean. And then up a little bit, we have two major bays, Willapa Bay and Grace Harbor. And so there's a couple of inland valleys that run off of those coastal uh, bays that that are really the main spot of sort of this overlap. For Washington, we, we have this sort of additional side that we talk about over in the Columbia Basin on the east side of the Cascades, the drier area of the state, uh, where it's a much more irrigated irrigated cropland type habitat. And on that side, uh, we do get strong numbers of taverners and lessers mixed in with with Western Canada geese. So on that side, it's devoid of the dusky Canada goose conversation. Uh, but, but we still have, you know, we still have these others <laughs> that are in the mix that we have to think about for harvest regulation purposes. When we have seven subspecies of, of, of a bird in a small geography, relatively small geography like this, uh, naturally people want to think about and, and talk about uh, hybridization and the potential for it to occur. Brandon, what can you tell me about that? I know you get that question as a state waterfowl biologist more than one time every year. I always started, I guess, with anything's possible, but these goose populations have evolved and it's not, we're not just talking these goose populations. We're talking goose populations across, you know, essentially the Northern hemisphere and and maybe the world. I'm just not familiar with a lot of the Southern hemisphere 
how those populations move around and, 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 and how they've kind of work, how they come and go. Geese, you know, mate for life, or at least they, they, what I like to caveat that with is, you know, they mate for the, the life of the, the, the other individual. Um, they certainly do repair. So, you know, they establish pair bonds um, with another goose, but they're migrating in these almost family flock kind of instances. Um, and then they're breeding in these discrete areas that generally aren't, you know, directly adjacent to the other populations. You know, so if you take Aleutian geese, those birds are breeding out on the Aleutian Islands. So, you know, you would have to get pairing to occur over the winter between the subspecies for, you know, that hybridization to occur. Um, and the same could go for cacklers and taverners or, you know, even taverners and, and lessers. And so, well, well, it certainly can occur. The biology of these goose populations keeps it at very low levels such that if it did occur, you actually produced viable offspring, the chances of them kind of perpetuating those um, crossbred genes would be extremely slim because if they're genetically viable themselves, they're just going to pair back into or breed back into either of their parents very quickly are going to swamp out anything that might have been different. So while it can occur, um, we have no evidence that it's occurring at a large enough scale where it is somehow changing the composition of the subspecies or our management populations. I'm glad you added that last part because we had an extended discussion with Dr. Phil Lavretsky about mallard genetics, uh, the genetics of the family of mallards, the mallard complex and hybridization between mallards and black ducks or mallards and model ducks. And he uh, he shared that they are learning the exact same thing that you described for um, for the geese, and they're learning it for the mallard complex. And that as long as those hybrids are breeding back into the one of those parent lineages after a couple of breedings, their their offspring are essentially back to a pure species or subspecies, as might be the case in uh, here. So um, that was an unexpected connection that you brought in there, Brandon, to one of our previous uh, episodes that I can I can share was very popular. And if if anyone listening to this has not yet listened to those episodes, I would encourage you to do so. Um, so let's see, guys, we are we're at a point here where maybe one more question and then we will wrap this one up. And it relates uh, since we're talking about subspecies and hybridization and things of that nature. Maybe this is, uh, I'll, I'll throw this out there because it popped into my head and it, it stems from something that Kelly mentioned in the previous episode where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is uh, kind of moving towards a recognition of the new taxonomic designation um, issued by the American Ornithological Society for Canada geese and cackling geese having two two species. And I, I guess there would probably be some subspecies designation under those, but uh, that's that might actually be part of the answer to the question I'm about to ask. How will or or will that recognition of two species, Canada geese and and cackling geese, complicate any of the harvest management of the birds that we're talking about here? And and just to kind of clarify, our very our next episode here is going to get into the details of that harvest management, um, but the, the harvest management issues. But is this new species AOS taxonomic designation any kind of complication for harvest management issues? Kyle, I'll go to you for that question. 
Yeah, that taxonomic change uh, from the AOU uh, has been around since 2004, I think, is when that one when that was sort of decided upon. And so from a taxonomic standpoint, yeah, it makes sense. There's definitely DNA support that says Canada geese, the large bodied ones differentiate from these cackling geese, the small bodied versions. Uh, there was separation where there had always been sort of conversation beyond that is how that translates into management. As we're talking about, it's, you know, we view these seven subspecies that occur in this zone kind of as a as a grouping that we have to deal with, wrestle with the management, you know, considerations and how do you how do you allow harvest on some but not on others uh, in this system. The, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, recognition, which I believe is passing through the process right now. The only piece that that uh, complicates a little bit is a very popular decision in sort of harvest management recently has been to separate out bag limits of the different types of geese. Uh, so there's a bag limit for Canada geese. There's a separate bag limit for snow geese. There's a separate bag limit for white-fronted geese. By this, by from management world view, looking at Canada geese and cackling geese as separate species, we we just have to merge the fact that that's sort of the, sim, the same thing. We are not going to create separate bag limits because of the difficulty of actually looking, you know, as a hunter trying to pick out the different uh, Canada and cackling goose subspecies. So to create separate bag limits would be very us on the hunters themselves. Uh, and so, you know, we we would just have to take steps to actually sort of merge the language to, to uh, make sure that those two are combined into one combo group uh, uh, for the bag limit considerations. And Kyle, that's going to provide a very useful transition to what we will talk about on the next episode, where when we have subspecies whose population status is different, uh, sort of on either different trajectories or at different stages, some are of greater conservation and management concern than others from a kind of population stability standpoint or population trajectory standpoint. And if we are challenged in some way to kind of differentiate those on the wing as hunters, um, then the harvest managers need to take certain steps and get creative sometimes to figure out how to reduce harvest pressure on those birds without making it too cumbersome for waterfowl hunters. And so that's what you guys as state waterfowl biologists and key players in the harvest management decision process um, are charged with doing. And you all have all done a, uh, done admirable jobs of that over the years. And so that will be the focus of the next episode here w with respect to how it affects these white-cheeked geese in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, guys, I think we'll wrap up this episode and start another one. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your time. And we will pick up here on the next episode. So Brandon, Kyle, thank you guys. Great. Thanks, Mike. You bet. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Brandon Reiches, Migratory Game Bird Coordinator with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and Kyle Spragans, Waterfowl Section Manager for Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does editing these episodes and getting them out to you. And of course, to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and spending it with us here on the podcast. And we thank you for your support of wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.
you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 